How was that? Yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty good. Hi guys, and welcome back to a, another round, or should I say, episode 19 of Controls and Couches. Controls and Couches. Um, I'm part, well, part one or part two of two and part one. You're the, the co- one co-host. One co-host. Um, and yes, I'm Fumero Chicken, FMC, the real oh. FMC. <laughs> I'm Steph Fafar. And <laughs> on this week's episode, we will be talking about more stuffs. words and stuffs. With stuffs. And letters and um, all those kind of things that you find in podcasts. <laughs> Hopefully. Yes. So the question is, that would technically make me a digital wizard. Because I'm dun, dun, dun. casting pods. Yes. I'm not podcasting. Yeah, anyway, it's one of those. So... What's new? What's new? Let's see. Hit me up with your life. Um, Hit me with a Sandboy chip. Well, for starters, Sandboy chips. What happened to them? They got small. No, but seriously, are they still in... They're still in production. They've got really small bags, but it's mostly... Excuse me for the click clacking. So, the thing but is... But they used to have the best salt and vinegar chips. Oh, yeah, they used to be the bomb. And they used to be like... I, think I still remember the bag... Burned into my brain. It used to be a 150 to what 200 gram bag, I think. Oh, like I'm salivating just looking like at it. It, the I suppose the acetic acid in these mm. chips would like kick your taste buds through the back of your head, but now it's like <laughs> watered down. When was the last time you bought Samboy chips? High school, they only make barbecue, well, That's they it. only sell barbecue That's on it. Woolworths. Heartbreak and despair. I don't know if Coles has them. Or I'll check Coles. Aldi yeah. doesn't have them. Oh, Aldi doesn't have big brains. No d- disrespect. Maybe you just have to get Did them. you hear me just say brains? Yes, brains. Oh, take me out of the lab for all of brains. five minutes, why don't you? So, um, yeah, what else? Um, I've been playing Call of Duty for maybe three <laughs> games, and it's just. Just barbecue, uh, sorry. Sorry to interject. But everyone... Oh, it's temporarily unavailable at Coles. Uh, if you can hear our floofs a lot better, we apologise. The upgrade in sound quality. And they only ever do this when we're podcasting. Yeah, like they're stupid. <coughs> they're retarded. <coughs> like they're dead set retarded. Um, but so, we love them. Yeah. So, essentially... Yeah, sample chips are not... You know, they used to be hit me. Hit me, hit me, hit me, assembly chip, you know. And you had the gobble dock with the, the Smith chips, but, you know, yeah, that thing was uh, kind of freaky. I remember, I know they don't do it now because it's a bargaining tool, but I remember getting chips and they used to have, like, playing cards in them. Yeah. Was that a real thing or is Tarzos. that me? Yeah. Yeah. Tarzo craze. That was good in back in the old 90s. Yeah. Pre-97 or something like that. Yeah. And, you know... They go for a lot on eBay. For sure. My um, gender-determining donor, his parents, his donors, gender donors, um, have my Tarzos, if they still do. Jeez. And I think I had like 70% of them. I didn't know what I was collecting back in the day. but Some of them are just stupid. So in terms of my life, talking about stupid things... I finally submitted my lit review. Very nice. Uh, that was supposed to be annoying voice. And I started my first actual project game today. Yep. Which is nice. Um, well, technically, I kind of started it on Tuesday because we had to do the culls, um, which is obviously sad. Um, but 
I had to do some of the dissections today. Mm-hmm. So I got all my brains out and they're all ready to go because someone has to show me how they, like their way of processing it. Yeah. And like actually, um, like, so I've ex- like taking it out, the skull and stuff, but their way of actually cutting it and the slices they make and the way they slice and what parts of the brain to keep. Because I kept everything and like the whole brain and the cerebellum and I think I cut, I, when I say I think, I mean I double checked, I cut at the level of the medulla. So yeah. that's, that's their waiting for the PhD student to be like, let me show you how I do it. Because um, I do want him to wait for me. But um, yeah, I like copy pasted my lit review. Obviously I'm going to need to do a lot of revisions when I get my comments back, but yeah. I chucked it into um, my thesis and stuffs and my references and um, I can start writing I guess my methods chapter now too which is great not really because it's starting that's it Um, no book updates what even is gaming me no no you don't know me no no well tonight's episode of Call of Duty was just horrible like for instance what you saw was okay if someone is running around with the same assault rifle as you are, or the same sniper rifle as you are, a sniper rifle is a one-shot weapon. Allegedly, but you need to have, for some of them, if they're not, like, the last unlock weapon... Yeah, yeah. You need to have certain attachments. But, like, the one I was using tonight, that was a maxed-out sniper oh, rifle. I don't know. And literally, you saw the one where the guy's yeah, standing sure. there and just headshot it in four times in the head. These people must have... LM, what do they call it? Um, MLG... <laughs> Internet just... connections. Apparently, we're going to get NBN at the end of the year. So I'm looking forward to the day it's just... where I can host again and be top tier internet. Because then, then we're we're hacking. So that'll be a good day. But yeah, no books for you. No, no books for you. Um, well, I've only just been reading journal articles. <laughs> Join me in my that was actually one thing like my supervisor couldn't pull me up on (laughs) when she gave me my first like revisions for my lit review and she's like oh you've read a lot and you know i'm happy with the amount you're reading and understanding so i had like six literally 60 references so i'm happy anyway talking about reading um i found i found for you today the best quiz uh, and it's called, obviously you can't name all of the Star Wars characters, but can you at least name ten? Yep. So obviously we can't do this together, but it's more of a quiz for you. Because um, I don't know if us discussing it is yeah. a cheat. Potentially, yeah. So I don't want to time you. Yep, we've got four minutes, so I guess we just talk about Star Wars while we actually so yeah Star Wars how many characters can you name and it says down here hello just an FYI these are the only characters from the current canon and don't include characters in the extended universe you don't need to type any spaces or hyphens for the droids you can be fancy and type it in or you can be lazy and type in like instead of C-3PO in capitals you can just go in lowercase C-3PO good luck and may the force be with you yeah alright you got four minutes. Three, two, one. Read them out as you go. Okay, so name as many Star Wars characters as you can. And you got to type them. 
Oh. You gotta okay. type them into the box. Alright, as soon as you start, I think it starts. Yeah, essentially. Right. So, Get going. am I doing it all? You're doing it. I don't okay. know. So. <laughs> kind of same as you go. I didn't yeah. hit enter, I think. It I'll read them out. It comes down to how <laughs> fast you can type. So, yeah. you've got Han Solo, Boba Fett, Boba Fett. So, it's. Just keep typing, dude. Keep typing. He's got three minutes, thirty-two seconds. Oh, this Luke is Skywalker, stupid. Yoda, Darth, Bad, nah. Darth Vader. Four hundred twenty-one left to find. Shiv Palpatine, Obi Wan. So this is. You don't like this quiz? No, no, no. It's a good one. It's Yoda. like it says. There's four hundred nineteen left to find. You don't like so this, this quiz? could. No, no. It's a good one. Essentially. <laughs> he stopped. He's not typing anything anymore. Yeah, like there's Le- heaps you can go through. Alright, sorry. So, um... We did you. Is that what you're doing? Okay, Keep going so... Let's... Let, let, first of all, um... Sorry. It's... <laughs> so, essentially, you can put all the... Maybe I should have done it. Because I've just realised when it's... You don't have to put the full name. It's only no, just... but that's okay. That's why it's for cheats, right? Do you want me to do it? Okay, you have. Would that be more it. fun? No, it wouldn't, because I'm not that good. No, you have you have a crack at it. For four minutes, okay. Oh, but I've already cheated because I've already seen like a first seven characters. No, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Never thine. Yeah, no, you can have a No, it's all right. It's cheat now. No, it's not cheating. It no. is. It's okay. I'll do it and I'll, I'll save the quiz. No, have and a when crack I've at forgotten, it. I'll do it. Have a crack at it. <sighs> Alright. But you have to read off what I'm typing, though. So you're going to have to get up. Oh, you can say them as just. Okay. Alright. Do I have to do the full, full four minutes? What if, I, what if I'm bad? No, no. <laughs> Alright. Three, two, one. We've always. Well, how do you even spell their names, to be honest? I've got Leia down there. Um, shit. What's his name? Luke. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. If I put Anakin, do I have to put in Darth because are they two no. separate characters? No, Actually, they are. <laughs> okay, uh, Darth Maul, who's my favourite. Um, Palpatine. Is it President Palpatine? What's the Chancellor's name? Chancellor Palpatine. Okay, apparently you can't put it in as Chancellor. If you put in Sidious, he's Darth Sidious. Oh, that's a cheat. I can't put that in. So you can't tell me names. Sorry. Um, Morgana's is not that universe. Is it? No, that's not that. Shit. Shit. What's his name? Harrison Ford. Don't, you can't tell me. Right? It's Harrison. Oh my God. What's his name? Why can't I? Th- Boba Fett. I have that on my key ring. Better fat. He's me just trying to... How do you even spell fit? Is it F-E single T? F-E-T-T. Or you just put... No, he or, doesn't... Or just Boba? Got it. If he double T. Yeah. All right. He, he had to be Boba first. I've got two minutes, 39 seconds left. What else... Who else is there? Think. What's Harrison Ford... Don't tell me. Harrison Ford's character. Shit. 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 Oh, my God. Well, who's, um... Obi, that you can't just put their first like oh it has to be like a full part of their first name to get it. Um, C three P O. What's the other one called? R two D two. 
Oh, shit. Fuck. Han Solo, you dumb bitch. You can't even just write Han. You have to write his whole name. Oh, God. Why am I so dumb? What's that mushroom slug looking guy? I know his name. Oh, shit. Um, fuck. Fuck. Fudgety fudge. The guy that everyone hates from the episode one. Uh, Jabba the Hutt? Yep. The Bendu. To that, I didn't even type the Bendu. I wrote Hutt, but okay. Someone I don't know. <laughs> Who else is there? Shit. What's the slug? Don't tell me, but what's the slug's name? Don't tell me. <laughs> don't tell me what's his name. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Ah, uh, I'm just like, uh, uh, like, what are the bots? And, like, I know that there are a ton of bots and shit. Chewbacca, that's another one. Chewy, oh no. Chi Amanwan Papanoda, who the hell is that? I just want to, apparently Chi Aman Wee Papanoida is his name. Um... Who else do we have here? Oh shit! Um, it's not Riker. Is it Riker? No. What's his name? Don't tell me. I don't know. Shit. Um, shit. Shit. I wonder if I write Stormtrooper. Stormtrooper ain't a name. Ugh. Who else is there? People. Oh my god. How is this so... i got 12 seconds. Like, who am I going to come up with now? Akbar! That's it! Lalal Snackbar! <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Oh, shit. What was the guy who's... Um... Oh, it's over. i got 15. Oh, shit. It actually gives you the name. The, the whole list of names you could have gone through. I don't even know half of these people. <laughs> Less than half, to be honest. Okay. It's done. I lived. I died. I learned. You did well? Not really. Okay. Movie reviews. Movie reviews? Um, I haven't watched anything. Maybe since back to the weekend, what did I watch? Did I watch anything? I know I did. We've just been watching Longmire, which you allegedly like. Yeah. I think I'm halfway through season four. I started season four. I don't know. Um, oh, though, not a review, but what was the name of that movie? Um, it was just on the coming to Netflix screen we were just talking about. It's got um, old Batman in it, uh, Jennifer Garner's ex. Yep. Ben Affleck. What's that ben movie Affleck. called? Batman. No, that movie that we just, you just made me watch the trailer. God, Triple Frontier. That's it. I had to Google it. Triple Frontier. No? Nine? So, yeah. And it's got um, King Arthur in it. King Arthur. Oh, jeez. I can't even remember now. <sighs> King Arthur and the Legend of the Sword. 2017, maybe. 2017, 2016. What's his name? Who are you? Charlie Hunnam. Dude, Charlie Hunnam. That's yeah. it. All right, never mind. All right. <clears throat> Into the news. Okay. 
Um, you actually sent me this link because you don't have access to the Google Doc any other time than when we... What are you typing? I'm doing the, the quiz. But I'm just talking. <laughs> okay, fine then. Um, Michael actually sent me this link and it's um, one of your friends runs a Checkpoint Gaming yep. company, whatever it is. And apparently, I don't know, was it them who started the petition? Did they? Was it Checkpoint Gaming who started the petition? The Change Org competition? Who's hosting that? But anyway, um, if you guys play the Plague Inc. game, who's Edouard Gabriel? Let's see who he is. Um, they, someone, this guy, wants to petition that these people, um, the get like the company that m- makes the game, put. Uh, an anti-vaxxers like uh, scenario in (laughs) their game essentially in their app and this guy put it like uh, the developer I can't remember how many they said but they said oh give us a certain amount of I'm sorry we keep click clacking I can't focus (laughs) oh so if the petition gets 10k we'll add the anti-vaxxers scenario and looking at it now it's at 22,798. Right? And then so I think it was a couple of hours after, literally a couple of hours after, no, two days later, they were like, in case you missed it, all right, all right, you spoke, we listened. Uh, we're going to start figuring out anti-vaxxers soon. Yep. So I can't wait for that update, to be honest. To be fair, to be fair. <sighs> Dude, how many more minutes you got? Um, one minute. Oh, thank the Lord. So... Uh, next news article, I suppose. <laughs> um, where are we going with this? What was I doing? Oh, yeah. Uh, apparently, Michael again sent me this article. But apparently, researchers have found that the brain starts eating itself when you don't sleep enough. Which is all to do with the astrocytes, just, you know... Which are a, a type of glial cell yeah. in your central nervous system. So you don't just have neurons, which are your brain cells, actually do the thinking. You have more glial cells than you do neurons. And they're essentially the support, and they do everything but, you know, send action potentials to the brain. Essentially, they regulate everything within your brain and your spinal cord. So they basically degrade themselves and digest themselves, and sleep disruption pretty much you know, uh, makes them kind of do that at a faster rate and promotes their activity. But apparently, if you catch up on sleep, you should be able to reverse the damage. But again, I didn't read an actual paper to get that information. Just, you know, just a little reedy-reedy on the side. I can't believe you did this without... Alright, how'd you go? I got... Well, in the typing, I managed to get 212 out of 426. Take a screenshot with your phone. And then I'll post it on our Instagram page. I need to beat it. I'm going to do it again. Not now. You're you're giving me commentary today, mate. Today I need you in top fighting form. (laughs) Today we're going to discuss something that we have never discussed before. And it's not serial. Alright, but I want to make a disclaimer. Before we actually get in today's topic, 
Um, in no way, shape or form am I, uh, is he, are uh, we, trying to disrespect the victims of this organisation. Um, we try to be very respectful in what we discuss and we try to talk about both sides, even though we talk shit and giggle, we, you know, bring up both sides of the story and we understand why. People may believe in a certain conspiracy or a certain belief. I'm just going to use that word yeah. when we cover these topics. So this is, all in all, this is purely neutral. Um, um, we're not here to we, degrade anyone. No. So at the end of the day, this podcast is purely just entertainment. And it's just so social commentary. Social commentary. Take from it what you will at the end of the our day. Our views don't res- re- re- reflect anyone else but ourselves. Yep. This is purely... And not, at the end of the day, sometimes when we do these podcasts, we do in fact change our own sort of stand on things. Yeah. It's just here to have a discussion. Yeah. So we're just here to have a discussion. It's like we would have between ourselves, except we're recording it. Yeah, essentially, raise awareness. At the end of the day, if you're a Scientologist and you enjoy these posts, you know... All we, the power to you, dude. If, we appreciate that. Yeah, um, like... If you don't, you know, like the post, we appreciate that. At yeah. the end of the day... Um, thank you for listening, I guess. Yeah, thanks for, for listening. hearing us out. Yeah, at the end of the day, this is just, you know... Us just saying a sequencing. Like, at the end of the theory. day, I don't care. Like, <sighs> mine religious upbringing is completely skewed for example my family are technically like we're talking generation wise two three back are technically macedonian but had to convert to greek and therefore my dad's parents because i was the eldest on both sides of the family if something someone needed to go back to deal with stuff they christened me greeks that way i wouldn't get killed because of all the turmoil that was happening around the time when i was born my brother's macedonian orthodox my mum's macedonian orthodox my dad's macedonian orthodox everyone else in my family both sides are macedonian orthodox so i get it right see because i'm more like i'm very much science-based so i'm yeah but you're you're like Roman Catholic or something. And like, I pretty much just put everything down to abiogenesis. <laughs> Any mahoozle. Whatever you are, we support you, right? If lighting candles and putting your crystals out every full moon gives you the same... Okay. On, on that note, though, however, if you are someone who really enjoys geodes... Rocks, whatever you want. Crystals, whatever you Crystals. want to call. And you put them on your steering no, wheel. No, steering wheel isn't the right that's place. That's a bad thing to do. What I'm saying is, no, if someone gets say. the same effect, charging their crystals and feeling aligned as someone going to a church, lighting a candle, or um, doing these, what do they call these things? Becoming cleared. All the power to you. If that's what it takes for you to feel like you're the best version of yourself, and that's what you want to do. No one's here to drag you down. See, but there's a difference between listening to Eye of the Tiger... And thinking you're the and eye. And TAC-ing Eye of the Tiger. What's TAC? Traffic Accident Commission. Okay, right on. So essentially, you know, Vic Roads. <laughs> Why, what happens? I'd like to ensure my Eye of the Tiger. The tiger's <laughs> eye. All right. So as previously spoiled, today we're going to start our coverage of the Church of Scientology... At this current point in time, I'm going to try and cover over two parts. So today's episode, we're going to discuss the origin um, and history. So pretty much L. Ron Hubbard himself, Dianetics and how Scientology got its start, because I kind of want to do it really in depth and to kind of do this topic justice. There's a lot to cover and I don't want to just rush through it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, so you freaked out about the amount of notes. 
so I should probably just bounce right into it. Stop me when you want to say something, otherwise I'll just read and read and read for 90 yeah, yeah, minutes. I'm just going to keep bagging them. So I'm going to play bad cop today. <sighs> We're trying to be neutral. Yeah. Neutral Nelly. Alright, so, basic bio as always. The Church of Scientology is a multinational network, apparently, and it's a hierarchy of numerous independent and interconnected corporate entities, and apparently there are other organizations that are part of this larger umbrella that are all part of the practice, administration, and dissemination of Scientology. It's classified as a new religious movement, and the Church of Scientology International codename CSI, is the official parent organization and they're responsible for guiding the local Scientology churches and branches. So at every local level, each church is a separate corporate entity and they're set up as a licensed franchise. Therefore, each church, so like the Melbourne church, they have their own board of directors and executives. Someone in Sydney have their own board and directors and executives and all that which is really interesting when you think about how many churches there must be but i guess that's also reflected in common like more i guess like anglican churches as well like you have the what do they call them like the reverends the pastors um the fathers and all that kind of thing yep uh, bishops that's the word so apparently the first church was incorporated in 1953, sorry, in December of 1953 in Camden, New Jersey by L. Ron Hubbard himself. The international headquarters are located at the Gold Base, which is an unincorporated area of Riverside County, California, and we're going to talk about them a lot next week. Um, they also have a location at Gilman Hot Springs, which is a private property and not accessible to the public. Scientology Missions International is also obviously under CSI and they oversee all the missions um, which are local Scientology organisations and they're smaller than churches so like just groups of people that go out and I guess try and spread the word of Scientology and they're like the not the pep talkers but they're the ones that like spread word you know what I mean like a Jehovah's Witness where they go to your door and they hand out the flyers yep. that's what sci- those um, missions do the Church of Spiritual Technology, or CST, that's the organization that owns the copyrights and the estate of Elrond Hubbard, so the guy who made everything. Um, but the highest authority in the Church of Scientology is a Religious Technology Center, or RTC, and they claim to be the holder of the Scientology and Dianetics trademarks. But it's in fact the executive organization. So the uh, David Miscavige, who's right now the front man besides Tom Cruise of Scientology, <laughs> he's effectively seen at, who's the head of Scientology. He is the chairman of the RTC, and the RTC oversees everything. <coughs> so they're the big bopper. Oh, bullshit. Oh, sorry, that coughs back. So uh, where was I leading with this? So all Scienti- all Scientology management organizations they're controlled by the members of Sea Org which is get this a legally non-existent paramilitary organization which rings alarm bells yeah because essentially they have their own navy pretty much <laughs> technically they're all marines marines but they don't really do anything it's like you know camp cookie cutters but the thing is the thing is, they're tricked into thinking that they're doing actual real work when they're essentially just slaving on someone's super yacht. Yep, that's all it is. It's like 
Sea Lab 2021, but you know, with less willpower. Pretty much, and yeah. they work like we'll talk about it next week. But they make people work twenty hours a day. Yeah, dumb dumbs. And they call those people that are part of the Sea Org the elite, most dedicated uh, Scientologists, essentially. So essentially, the best sheeples. They're called Pretty much, or which best is sad. Because they're at sea. But apparently David Miscavige is the highest ranking Sea Org officer, holding the rank of captain, which makes sense because yeah, he's allegedly... he's the big cheese. Yeah, for sure, you know, for sure, like, that makes sense. Apparently, well, obviously we know in some countries it's, they're legally recognised as a religion, but they're tied up in a number of controversies and they have a lot of critics that, claim, you know, that say that they're a cult and they're simply a commercial enterprise that is essentially scamming people. And that's not me saying that, that's just what they say. So the church has a book. This is just a book value, right? Just the books. And obviously they're not going to share all the information out there because now that they're in the majority, especially in the US, because they're, class- like they're classified as a church and they're tax exempt, they don't have to claim their earnings. So based on what we know, so like the sales and signing up of members and entry level stuff, they, the church has a book value of $1.75 billion, right? And 1.5 billion of that is tied up in real estate. So that's a lot of grass. When you think about it, there's also a lot of fraud involved with this too. Oh, for sure. Um, the estimated annual, and this is all US dollars, by the way. The estimated annual revenue collected by the church is 200 million dollars. That's a lot of biscuits. And obviously, we know that uh, the church oversees a practice of religion created by a science fiction writer. So, you know, legitimacy, I don't know. Um, but some of, like, his colleagues and other people that wrote science fiction on the same time that he did in the 1940s said that he was very interested in getting rich. And Lloyd Arthur S. Bash quoted him as saying, I'd like to start a religion. That's where the money is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just don't forget, people, that OT, uh, well... Scientology has... It's basically based around courses, but that'll come in later. Yeah. And... You have to do one to get to the other, and you just want to get to the top. And as we sort of... Look at, look at Buddhism as an example. It's about gaining enlightenment, etc. Being, you know, spiritually... Connected. Connected and, yeah. with the environment, you know, trees, animals, everything. Which, good on you. Like, so, but... Buddhism is not going to cost you money to level up spiritually. No, it's all in yourself and bettering yourself. But what I did notice is they take a lot from other religions. The key elements that can build a structure and a foundation to pursue a common goal. However, the common goal is essentially... To give some people some money. Yeah, the, the goal, it's a pyramid scheme. Actually, yes. That's it's the best way a, of describing it. It's just it. a pyramid scheme. So, to give you an idea, when you actually go to the actual... Because you've been in one, haven't you? And you accident. didn't know where you were. I don't know. See, I mean, as you guys listening probably guessed, we're both scientists. If you hadn't by now, we're both scientists. <laughs> now, we're t- there's like I'm a massive geek slash nerd. We are, we are nerds. We are geeks. Um, this is why we love tech. Um, I... I walked into a 
um, one of the churches. I'm going to say a science store because I thought it was a science store. Science. Did you actually? So you saw I the word science, and, you and were the like... sign on the door said, "So I saw Scientology." The church part, I don't remember. I think it must have been small, but in you the large the writing on the window, yep. Scientology. So essentially, I saw science. I thought, wow, science. So you thought it was a lab or something? It was. I thought this, like this store, where it was, yep. was near like a store that had telescopes and all this sort of stuff. Oh, so, so you thought it was like in that geo or something? Yeah, I literally was just wandering around going, oh, yeah, this store. You know, yeah. I, was, I was literally, you know, geeking out on everything in the city. So, yeah, you know, when you look at cows and like <laughs> sheep and just open skies, you kind of go, okay, I've read enough books, time to kind of, you know, Go out there and see things. So I walked into this store and it wasn't what I thought. People were just kind of weird. It looked like a, a shop. Yeah. It just looked like a shop. Um, so, you know, you get the usual... Oh, can I help you? Blah, 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 blah. Obviously, I was young at this point. Didn't know what it was. Never heard of it. Thought it was science. Some books looked mathematical and there was a lot of psychology going on. Mm -hmm. So I was like, "Eh, no, this doesn't have anything I can use to pursue my own common goals. Did you actually say that to them? Something along those lines. I just recall, sorry, I'm not interested in this kind of science. I'm more of a... You yeah, know, a biologist. Time. So, yeah. you know, walk out. So, did they try to like sell stuff? I didn't to get you? anything sold to me, but I just look back on it and I kind of go. So they just went, "Oh, can I help you?" Yeah, more like just, "Oh, hi, can I help you?" Oh, would you like to buy a book? Blah blah blah. Here's this. Would you like a pamphlet? No, thanks. Cheers. Bye. You know, you get that vibe of this person seems like a charlatan. This person seems a little pushy. You know. Uh, bye. No thanks. Everyone's looking at me at weird. Bye. <laughs> Did the, you run? It might have been the boots. It, <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. It was all of it. But definitely, you know, the baseball cat, me walking in, they must have thought, geez, this guy's really, really green. You know, we'll just... Naive, they probably naive. thought. But like sure enough, only. it was enough of a, ah, oh, this is kind of weird, walk out. So I walked out, but the next time I encountered it and realised what it was, was I'd gone to the pancake parlour. Now, triggered. Now, here's the funny thing: early two thousands, um, pancake parlour had all the, the dire whatever. Dietetics. Sorry, I was going to hiccup. It's okay. The dietetics and everything. They had the pamphlets out with all the. You know, maths and stuff. And like, you know, help with you, you know, this and help with that and blah, blah, blah. So you'd have a stack, like a large stack. It's oh, what are these flyers? Oh, what's this? Oh, you can buy books, blah, blah, blah. So they sold books there. You could buy books, like actual books. Self-help guide. You know, Dianetics, a self-help guide. Twenty nine ninety five. See, I remember... 29.95 is it? arbitrary figure I'm just throwing out there but there was a cost involved with certain things yeah for sure but the more pressure that came onto Scientology the more things were retracted so I look back on that and kind of go it was weird I never really paid much attention to it because I'd had friends in like circles saying 
what was going on and actually in telling not in but knowing people were in and actively engaged in the church itself. No, no, sorry, in um, trying to get them shut down. So there's two sides to the coin. Seeing people change, there's three people I do know that have gone into the church or the business. They are not the same people they are or they were. They're completely different and they do not associate with any of us now. Because they have to cut off and you can only talk to Scientologists. You can only talk to Scientologists. You can only, you know, everyone, in once you've been inducted, let's use that term. Yeah, once you are inducted. That's it. That's it. So it's more of a... It's... It's really, really dodgy the way they've done it. Because it's... See, this is also the other thing. Um, where the Pancake Parlor actually opened up and what people actually like found. It, but it's actually from... like One of them was actually made in Adelaide. Pancake Parlor? Pancake, pan, pancake Parlor in Adelaide. Yep. They opened their first restaurant in 1965. City of Churches! City of Churches. Dude, triggered conspiracy. Conspiracy yeah. alarm bells. And, you know, this chain, and we say chain of pancake parlors, um, essentially resulted in a, an approximate annual turnover of $40 million at a whole bunch of restaurants no. across Australia. And, oh, sorry, across Victoria. Jesus. So, yeah, That's it's... Essentially, the pancake parlor in itself has helped provide funding to get the Church of Scientology backing. So, interesting fact, if anyone is interested, the, um, you know, if anyone knows where Spring Street Street is in Melbourne, um, that's where they were going to organise the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International, or HASI. Right. So, um, yeah. But... You know, it's oh, they make so much money from it, and just the the original one opened up um, just off Hadley Street, uh, Hindley Street, I think it was. So, whoop. Yeah, and um, but the funny thing was though, the Church of Scientology and the Pancake Parlor say they were never linked. Never linked. Like, um, and you know, the pancake parlor has no involvement with the Church of Scientology, you know. And then they say that you know, there's no, you know, knowledge of any religious beliefs or blah blah blah. But then you hear stories of people who actually worked at the pancake parlor, managerial promotions within the company, yet to be a Scientologist, were much easily gained. achieved. And achieved if you were a practicing member. I don't know. So, not to distract you. Yeah. But let's get. Yeah, yeah. So that's... <laughs> Story yeah. time with Mike. Ding! Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, this other guy called Sam Merwin said, I always knew he was exceedingly anxious to hit big money. He used to say he thought the best way to do it would be to start a cult. Of course. 
And obviously, we can't verify this information, but... Okay, look at it this way. Of course, you know, it's a rip-off. It's a business. You use fraud. You're going to make that cash for sure. Elrond Hobbit was, you know... A genius in his own way. He was a liar. For sure. Basically, he was... I mean, he was abuser of narcotics and everything. He... You know. We're getting to that. Sorry. Stop stop okay. spoilering. Sorry. <laughs> no, you don't have to shut up. So to understand how deep this rabbit hill goes, essentially, we're going to turn back the time, clock time to 1911 in Tilden, Nebraska, where Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, or Al Ron Hubbard, or LRH, was born. He's the only child of Ladora May, who was a teacher, and Harry Ross Hubbard, Hubbard who was a former United States Navy or naval officer. So they, the family moved to Kispel, Kalispell, Montana, settled, settled in Helena in 1913. His dad rejoined the Navy in uh, April of 1917 during the First World War. His mother worked as a clerk for the state government during the 20s. They obviously had to repeatedly locate um, around the US and overseas. His dad rejoined the Navy and uh, he was posted on the USS Oklahoma. And in 1912, the family had to relocate to the ship's home ports, which were in San Diego, and then they moved to Seattle. Which I've always been interested, did they put the families on the boats and just, then just take the boats, or did they make the families go their own way? Maybe they go their own way. I don't, I don't know. Apparently, uh, he was active in the Boy Scouts in Washington, D.C., and he earned the rank of Eagle Scout in 1924, two weeks after his 13th birthday. Now, this is really debated because he said and he vehemently stated that he was the youngest person to ever be awarded this rank. Now, I was never involved in the Scouts, so please fact check me. But from my uh, Googling, my simple Google search, the Boy Scouts um, have a record of him becoming an Eagle Scout on the 28th of March, 1924 in D.C., Washington, D.C. However, there is no way to know whether he was the youngest Eagle Scout ever because they don't officially record the age of the Scouts. However, a National Office spokesperson estimated that the average age of an Eagle Scout was 11, with some as young as 10. Um, So basic maths, my maths, correct me if I'm wrong. If he was awarded it in 1924, two weeks after his 13th birthday, Right? So 1924 minus 1911, which is the year the record state he was born, that's 13. Yeah. So if he's the same Ron Hubbard that was indeed awarded the rank of an Eagle Scout, he was 13. But because they don't record the ages of the Scouts, there could be people who were awarded that at a younger age. Like, yes, you're young to be awarded an Eagle Scout. Yeah. But again, no offence, I know you were a Scout, but I personally think the Eagle Scout is a Scouts program is another cult. Well, not cult, but it's another pyramid scheme. Yeah, see, essentially you look at the Boy Scouts, which were, you know, basically started by Lord Baden-Powell. It was a way to get... Boys from the city to grow up and reconnect and survival camp. Survival instincts, all that sort of stuff, but prep them for military life. For sure. I didn't think of it that way, but for sure. That was sort of because he had a military upbringing. Yeah. He was in the military. It was he wanted to. Install... It was like getting ready for military school. 
Yeah, but also a way to survive. Yeah. In the I get it. Yeah. So like, I get was, it. That was... I, I think that the skills they teach these kids and the girl guides are important. Yeah. But I'm saying the way they go about it and you hear the bullying and how they tear badges off kids because the kid may have done one thing wrong yeah. in their eyes. I don't think that's good. And everyone's going to be like, oh, my God. But, you know, you have to teach kids that, you know... Being a participant is a winner. That's not what I'm saying. You just can't treat kids the way that some, obviously not all, do they call them branches? Do they call them chapters? I don't know. Troops. Troops get treated. But I'm just saying there are going to be some fantastic people. There are going to be some great troops and troop leaders or whatever the hell they call them. No offense. And then there are going to be the bad ones, obviously, thrown in there a little. But what do you do? So anyway, this dude, his father was posted to Puget Sound Naval Shipyard at Bremerton, Washington, where he ended up getting enrolled in Union High School in Bremerton, and he studied at Queen Anne High School in Seattle after that. In the 19, in 1927, his dad was sent to the U.S. Naval Station on Guam, where his mother accompanied his dad, and Ron was placed in his grandparents' care in Helena, Montana, where he finished his schooling. And then in 1920, well, later in 1927, he and his mother travelled to Guam where he stayed for six weeks before returning home. And he actually recorded his impressions of the places he visited and um, he disdained the poverty of the inhabitants of Japan and China. And um, he described them in such racist commentary. I'm not even going to say one word because that's absolutely effing disgusting. Um, and said that they were lazy and ignorant, which I'm sorry, but no. Um, that's not my views. That's just me trying to tell you what a real piece of work, disgusting, racist guy this guy was, right? His ideals, whether they be a work of fiction or reality, um, people believing in them or not, if the beliefs are good, what society determines to be good belief system... And you're a good person. Good on you. Yeah. Um, but the guy in himself was not a good person. And you can tell me, oh, he was just a product of his age. I don't give a shit. It's a shit deal. Yeah. So he returns to the US in September of 1927, where he enrolls at Helena High School. He apparently contributed to the school paper. Right? So this is where he gets his writing start. But he earns poor grades. He drops out of school in May. And then travels back west to stay with his aunt and uncle in Seattle. He goes back to join his parents in Guam in June of 1928. Where his mum, because obviously she was a teacher, takes over his education. And she's trying to push him towards taking the entrance exam to the United States Naval Academy. That was at the time, I don't know if it still is, I think it is, in Annapolis, Maryland. So between October and December of 1928... um, He's, his family and a ton of other naval families travelled from Guam to China aboard the cargo ship USS Gold Star. Gold Base. Yeah. Well, that's a different story. And the ship uh, stopped at Manila in the Philippines before they went off to... Back then it was Quindao, but now I think it's Tsingtao. I apologise for the mispronunciation. I'm a basic white woman with no cultural application in China ever. <laughs> anyway, Ron spent uh, most of his time writing dozens of short stories and essays where he ended up failing the Naval Academy entrance examination. So in September of 1928, he was enrolled in the Swavely Preparatory School in Manhattan, Virginia. And can we just talk about how far around the studio is travelling? 
Like, he's very well-traveled. Yeah. And it didn't open up his mind at all um, because they wanted to prepare him for a second attempt um, at the examination to go to um, Naval Academy. He was ruled out of consideration due, his near, due to his nearsightedness, but he was sent to Woodward School for Boys in Washington, D.C. to qualify for admission to George Washington University. And he successfully graduated from school in June of 1930, where he entered the academy, the university, sorry, uh, that September. Academically, he was a poor student, and people have gotten hold of his transcripts, and they showed how he failed a lot of courses or subjects. Um, atomic physics is one example, even though later on in life he tried to say that he was a nuclear physicist. Yeah. Like, I get that you may fail a subject when you start uni and then you end up being like, I hate this so much, I'm going to be the best person at it. Yeah. You know, so that's fair enough. Like, I get people do that. But for someone who was so beat up about our cake, things such as education, he indeed lied about a lot of his his achievements for sure. That's just what I'm trying to get across. Sorry if that was pretty poor and abysmal explanation. So in September of ni- <coughs> I should get some water. In September of 1931, he was put on probation because of his grades, and on you know on the 23rd of April in 1932, he was issued a warning. In his final semester, or what would turn out to be his final semester at GWU, he organised an ill-fated expedition to the Caribbean aboard a schooner. Is that how you say that word? Yep. Doris Hamlin. Uh, which was supposed to... They were going to ride out or float out, whatever you say when you're on a boat. Sail out, that's it, in June in 1932. And the aims of the Caribbean Motion Picture Expedition uh, were to explore the film pirate strongholds and boy vox of the Spanish main and to collect whatever one collects for exhibits and museums. So some bitch just wanted to be... um, What's that other character that Harrison Ford plays? Da 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 da! That's the one. Thank you. Apparently, they got into trouble before they even left Baltimore, where they were taking off. Ten participants quit, and storms blew the ship far off course to Bermuda. Some of the people that were going to go with him made legal claims against him, tried to take him to court because they wanted refunds. So because of (laughs) that, he didn't go back to uni after the summer. His father made him volunteer for a Red Cross relief effort after the 1932 San Cyprian uh, Cyprian hurricane, I think it was. Um, 23rd of October 1932, he travelled aboard the USS Kittery. What kind of name is that? I don't know. To Puerto Rico. And Miller, don't know who this person is, writes, Somewhere between Norfolk, Virginia, and Port-au-Prince, it seems that Ron decided to abandon the Red Cross. Instead, he appears to have done some work for a firm called West Indies Minerals Incorporated, accompanying a surveyor in an investigation of a small property near the town of Luquillo, Puerto Rico. So he does whatever he does as a surveyor's assistant. And then he goes back to D.C. in February of 1933, where he ends up in a relationship with... Because uh, he liked gliding. That was his, you know, thing. Um, so he ended up meeting this other chick called Margaret, nicknamed Polly Grubb. And 
years down the track he goes telling people she's my guardian angel she's a smiling woman that protected me when i'm flying in my gliders so whenever he met her apparently they were married on april 1930 1930 on the 13th of april sorry she was already pregnant when they were married no disrespect but um just information uh some people say that some of this pressure may have pushed him over the edge but she ended up, poor thing, suffering a miscarriage shortly afterwards. But a few months later, they were lucky enough to become pregnant again. And on the 7th of May, 1934, she gave birth prematurely to a son that they called Lafayette Ronald Hubbard Jr., who they nicknamed Nibs. I don't know how you get Nibs from that, but please, if someone knows, explain. And then shortly after that, they had their second girl, or the second child, their first daughter, Catherine May. And then they ended up living in Laytonsville, Maryland. But everyone says that they were chronically short of money. All the money. So the only thing that this guy really likes to do is write. Yeah. It's the only, I'm not going to say he excels at it, but we know he liked to write for the school paper. And then when he became, you know, because they used to pay per, pay, uh, per, per word. word. Um, yeah. Was it five cents per word or something? I have the money here, I think, sorry. Yeah. So, um, he becomes a well-known and prolific writer for pop fiction magazines during the 1930s. And his literary career began with contributions to George Washington, we know that, the student newspaper, which is apparently called the University Hatchet, for a few months. Um, six of his pieces were published commercially during 1932 to 33. The going rate for freelance writers at the time was a cent a word. So, his total earnings from these articles would have been less than 100 bucks. But if you um, inflate that to today's American dollar, that's 1935 bucks. So the magazine Thrilling Adventure was the first place that he published one, or the first, I don't want to say the word journal, but the first like magazine he published in, in February of 1934. So for six years, a lot of magazine published his works under a variety of pen names. Some of this were Winchester Remington Colt, Kurt von Rachen, I don't know, Rene Lafayette, Joe Blitz, and Legionnaire 148, which is very sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. Because he was best known for his sci-fi and um, fantasy stories. But apparently he wrote a wider, you know, variety of stuff, a lot about aviation. We know he likes gliding, traveled because he traveled a lot, mysteries, westerns, and even romance. So in spring of 1936, he and his wife and his two kids, they moved to Bremerton, Washington, where they lived with uh, Ron's aunts and grandmother before they were able to find a place of their own in South Colby. Uh, One of his friends, Robert MacDonald Ford, who he associated with at this time, quoted as saying, in fairly dire straits for money, but they sustained themselves on his writing income. So at this point, I think we can agree everyone's driving home that money is something that they this family needs more than anything. Yeah, it's you know, you've got a wife, you've got two kids. That's what you need for your family to survive. So he ends up publishing his first full-length novel, novel called Buckskin Brigades in 1937. And he became a highly idiosyncratic, quote, not mine, writer of science fiction after being taken under the wing of editor John W. Campbell, who ended up publishing a lot of his short stories and serialised a ton of his novelettes. 
uh, in magazines and a ton of other stuff. Um, I guess I should say some of his works. Um, we have Fear, Final Blackout, Typewriter in the Sky. Uh, he published a lot of science fiction newsletters. Apparently, in his prime, he wrote 1,000 words a month. Jeez. And that his writing, like all of his editors agree that his writing was done at this lightning speed. Oh, yeah, he's just punching those numbers out. I guess when you're desperate, and writing seems to be the only thing that dude likes. Like, go for it. Um, What else have we got here? Apparently, he spent more and more time in New York City, and he spent a lot of time um, in a hotel room where his wife suspected him of carrying on affairs with other women. So this is where what... The first work that becomes really important, well, down the line, becomes really important for Scientology. In mid-1938, um, he, he was unpublished at this point in time, but this manuscript was called Excalibur. And it, looking back, like it highlights the key steps for Scientology developing their principles, especially Dianetics as well. Like I guess Dianetics turned into Scientology down the line. Like It was just a stepping stone yeah. to kind of test the waters and... When it failed, they started something else, essentially. But it basically, in in Scientology, they believe that Excalibur outlined the basic principles of human existence. And it was a culmination of 20 years of research into 21 races and cultures, including Pacific Northwestern Indian tribes, Philippine Tagalogs, and the people of the Bronx. Like, I get that you're well-traveled. Yeah. But... Dude, don't try and wrap everything up into no, one book. They, you ain't going to do it. They went full on just, yeah, wanted to incorporate everything. So apparently he went to some convention in 1948. Um, and he said that he died for eight minutes. And that was the inspiration before, you know, behind Excalibur. <laughs> um, this dude called Jerry Armstrong, who turned out to be his archivist... You know, after he opens the church, said that he had a dental extraction that was done obviously at the time under nitrous oxide, and obviously, you know, you know, gives you <laughs> hallucinogenic yeah. kind of experiences. So he thinks he died. Like your brain ain't gonna live no. unless you've been chilled. And like, but I'm sorry, that's not how it works. And he said that he realised he was dead and he received a tremendous inspiration and a great capital M for message, which he must impart to others. And then he sat, just get this, at the typewriter for six days and nights, but nothing came out. Then, majestically, Excalibur emerged. Which, I'm sorry, but... um, What's his name? King Arthur's story. Yeah. Sherlock agrees. Sherlock yeah. agrees. That's all I need. Essentially, whereas, as we know, in Arthurian legend, you know, <laughs> the sword of Excalibur was thrown into the bosom of the lake, you know, essentially, maybe Elrond Hubbard should have been thrown into the bosom of the lake. I think you mean drowned, but okay. That too. And we should have been given the sword back. For sure. It would have been much, much higher in monetary value and much more fun. For sure, but this dude, he thought that this was going to revolutionise everything and his quote, it was somewhat more important and would have a greater impact upon people than the Bible. 
and he said that he proposed that all human behavior could be explained in terms of survival, which I guess is fair enough, and that to understand survival was to understand life, which, I'm sorry, nothing new. Has anyone heard of Darwin? But let's keep steamrolling, right? His biographer said that the notion that everything that exists is trying to survive became the basis of Dianetics and Scientology. Again, I'm sorry, geneticists have been saying this for decades and every other science, but let's not talk about that. So he's basically gone around to all of these people saying, this is the book, you know what I mean? This is the new Bible and you need to publish this. But no one picked up the the microscope, magnifier, I'm sorry, the manuscript. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And apparently he was going around telling literary agents that whoever read the manuscript either went insane or committed suicide. And that's not something to joke about. No, it's like... So, he's a shit man. And the last time he'd shown it to a publisher in New York, he walked into the office to find out what the reaction was. And the reader came out with the manuscript, threw it on the table, and threw himself out of a skyscraper window. Allegedly. Which I doubt... I think, like, how could you even suggest such a thing? But this is, like, his psychosis was on a different level. Literally, sky sky high. So because he's failing to, you know, get someone to pick up Excalibur, that depressed him. Um, He wrote a letter in October of 1938 to his wife saying, Writing Action Pulp doesn't have much agreement with what I want to do because it retards my progress by demanding incessant attention and it further weakens my name so you see i've got to do something about it and at the same time strengthen the old financial position so money 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 right i have high hopes of smashing my name into history so violent violently which he did that it will take a legendary form even if all books are destroyed that goal the real goal as far as i'm concerned so this he can't publish it himself, right? No. So you know what he does? He starts his first cult to get money so he can make his church cult oh, yeah. to sell yes. this manuscript as the new Bible. Yes. And we think this is ridiculous, yeah. but some poor, like, poor people are selling gold-bound and locked first editions of this today for about $16,000. Well, they get, they're trying to get their money back. And apparently he was he like was promoting it, saying, for the first 15 people who read it went insane. But just previously you were telling us anyone who read it was you know went insane or committed suicide, which I'm not trying yeah. to joke about. Like, that's serious and that's absolutely disgusting. Um, and it was released only on sworn statement not to permit other readers to read it because it contained data not to be released during his stay on Earth. Yeah. Why? Because you didn't want anyone to come after you when they realised what pile of shit it was? Yeah, and, you know, I think if you wasted that much money, now that we actually know what it was all about, you kind of, like, if you wasted your life going towards that, you'd be like, what? For sure, though. Could you imagine spending that much? Like, it takes years to get to that, you know, the top level where they tell you what it was all for, at least back then. Yeah. No one knew. And you... Imagine getting told that. But I guess at that point, you are so institutionalized yeah. that you believe anything. 
Yeah. No, I, I'm not trying to disrespect people, but you think it's for a good cause. And like, you think up until this point in time, everything they have done is to make you a high level of you. Yeah. And to make you the best you. But whatever. So apparently he goes, like, later on, he decides to let um, this club in, the Explorers Club in the Caribbean in 1940 uh, to let him take survey flights across the US and to carry an Alaskan radio experimental expedition to update the US Coast Pilot to guide coastlines across Alaska and British Columbia and to investigate methods of radio position finding. And do you know who he took with him and who his crew whose crew was? His wife and his kids. So. But he left his kids at South Colby um, aboard, aboard his catch, The Magician. The Magician. He told the Seattle Star in November 1940 that the expedition was plagued by problems and did not get any further than Ketchikan, I think it's how you say that, which is the northern end of the Alaska Panhandle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently the engine broke down two days after setting off and they reached Ketchikan on the 30th of August in 1940. And after many delays and engine breakdowns and actually not starting the expedition, they pretty much underestimated the cost of the trip and didn't even have enough money to repair the engine to essentially get his family back home. So he had to spend a whole year, essentially. So they took off... When did I say they took off? Ah, shit. In February of 1940, they took off. They didn't make it back to Seattle... To the 27th of December, 1940. So, almost a whole year. Yeah. From February to December, he couldn't get his family home. Like, how are you planning? It's remote. What were you going to do? Uh, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? He didn't plan Do people not think? No. It's like saying, oh, I'm going to go on a fucking 14-hour car trip from here to Perth, and I'm not going to care if I run out of fuel... What do they call it, the Newell? What's yeah. that stretch of road that's like isolated and you only see one car every three hours? It's like as you go from... Um, it's like between South South Oz and WA. It's like... Oh, I, can't, I, I know the one you're talking about, but I can't remember. Checks, 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 check, 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 Drive, Google Maps... Not many uh, things going on in that area, for which you don't want to get Did they rename it to National Highway? Maybe. I don't know. I know that there's this one road. Yeah. It's a highway, something. I don't know. But what I'm saying is you don't go on, you know, it's okay, never mind. I'm just carrying on. Where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So he comes back from Alaska and he goes... You know what? It's time to join the Navy. Yeah. So, at this point in time, he has a friend, Robert, Robert McDonald. <laughs> Ronald McDonald? No. I'm imagine, so sorry. Imagine if, like, Ronald McDonald was. <laughs> Robert McDonald Ford, uh, who at this point was a state representative for Washington, sent a letter. <clears throat> sent? A letter of recommendation 
describing Hubbard as one of the most brilliant men I have ever known. And then he came forward, later came out and said, Hubbard had written the letter himself and said, I don't know why Ron wanted a letter. I just gave him a letterhead and said, Hal, you're the writer, you write it. So he wrote his own letter of recommendation and got him in. Finally, he gets in um, as a lieutenant junior grade in the U.S. Naval Reserve. (coughs) Reservists. No offense, you defend the country, but I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, On 19th of July, 1941. And in November, he was posted to New York. Because remember, he loves New York. Bless you, my child. For training as an intelligence officer, which I am so sorry, but what even? Yeah. On the 18th of December, he's posted to the Philippines. Uh, and then they set out to Australia, and then he was in Melbourne, and he was transport to Manila, and then he was sent back to the US because a naval attaché reporter said the officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous. Let me just Google what garrulous actually means. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like he was here. This psycho is here. Excessively talkative. Especially on true Oh my god, I love this word. Word of the month, garrulous. And tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think his unusual ability in most lines. These characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligence duty. So his request for sea duty was approved. (laughs) And then he was posted to Neponset, Massachusetts in a shipyard which was converting a trawler into a gunboat, which uh, later got classified as the USS YP-422. Yeah. And on the 25th of September, 1942, the commandant of the Boston Navy Yard informed Washington that, in his view, Hubbard was not temperamentally fitted for independent command. Days later, on October 1st, he was uh, relieved of his command. Sorry, can I just get some water? Yeah, because water. I've been reading... Because, like, you look at this guy... And, I mean, from what we've seen and what we've read, the guy is a complete nutbag. Oh, for sure. Like, oh, this is lemonade. What he am I is doing? essentially running on a very short deck of cards. He's not... He can't play 52 pickup. He was, yeah, like, dangerously crazy. Oh, but, dude, I don't get it. So, sorry, can I just scull some water from yeah, yeah. this? 1.5... So, I find it more just the delusions of grandeur with this guy. Oh, for sure. And the fact that because of his own mental instability, any kind of thing that would diagnose him as a you know nutcase, he tried to just go against. But here's the thing. I can't get in the Navy, so I'll make my own. Yeah, exactly. So he was sent to submarine chaser training and in 1943 was posted to Portland where he took command of a submarine chaser, the USS PC-815, which at the time was under construction. On the 18th of May, it sailed on her shakedown cruise, bound for San Diego. Guess what happened? <laughs> it went to shit. Of course it did. <laughs> job. Five hours into the voyage, he believed he detected an enemy submarine. Nah. Nah. Dude, there are people's lives aboard, yeah. right? He spent the next 68 hours engaging combat. Yeah. And then he finally received orders to return to Astoria, where Admiral Fletcher, who was the commander of the North, Northwest Sea Frontier, concluded that an analysis of all reports convinces me that there was no submarine in the area and that 
the Admiral suggested that he had mistaken a known magnetic deposit for an enemy sub. So the next month, he sails the PCA-15 into Mexican territorial waters and conducts gunnery practice off the Canaro Islands in the belief that they were uninhabited and belonged to the U.S., the Mexican... Sorry, go. No, no, no. Yeah, just... You're just signing? Yeah. The Mexican government complains, as you do, like, people could have died. Yeah. But whatever. And he was relieved of command. They later wrote a report after the incident and rated him as unsuitable for independent duties, which we kind of already knew, yeah, yeah. but whatever. Lacking the essential qualities of judgment. Children, why are you rolling and tugging? Leadership and cooperation. The report recommended that he be assigned duty on a large vessel where he can be more properly supervised. And can I just talk about how this much, how this just absolutely astounds me. Like how much does one person have to stuff up before they just decide he's unsafe, let's get rid of him, right? Especially in the military, the U.S. Navy. Like, I know everyone jokes, stay in school or you'll end up at Navy. Yeah. But this is a new low for Navy. Yeah, he's, you know, a complete nutbag. Like, he shouldn't be in the Navy. He shouldn't be in anything. He would have been able... Actually, no, he probably would have been able to sell Girl Scout cookies. But, you know... Yeah, after he shoved, you know, copies of Excalibur in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... His life continues going through a turbulent time, especially after the war. By his own account, he was abandoned by family and friends uh, as a supposed hopeless cripple and a probable burden upon them for the rest of my days. His daughter Catherine says, uh, no, that's not true. He had pretty much refused his, like, the daughter, his wife didn't want to get their children to move from Bremerton to Bremerton, Washington to join him in California. Like, she didn't want to uproot her kids. She wanted to do the best thing for their family. But, obviously, like, they spent so much time away. He is such a difficult person. She wants to focus on the kids that, at this point, you know, they're starting to drift apart. So, in August 1945, he moves into the Pasadena mansion of John or Jack Whiteside Parsons, um, who was, at the time, a leading rocket propulsion researcher at the California Institute of Technology and a founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who led a double life as an avid occultist and thalamite and a follower of the English ceremonial magician Alastair Crowley and leader of the Lodge of Crowley's Magical Order, Auto Templi Orientis, OTO. Yeah. Um, pretty much... This is where he decides it's time for me to actually start a religion. Yeah. Right? This is where that. he gets it get drilled in his head, right? I've got to get that thing. So he and his wife are obviously having turbulent times. She wants to put the kids first. He's not having it. So he ends up taking this dude, his supposed friend's 21-year-old girlfriend, Sarah, Sarah, Betty, Northrup, and, um, you know, the two began... A relationship and pretty much um, it literally I like there was so much information on this and them just having 
Like, there are so many things that I don't even want to say. But their relationship pretty much leads him to getting, um, you know, he just goes crazy. And this church thing gives starts giving him new ideas. So he gets a group of his friends to start a business, like that are part of this other temple thing, to start a business partnership that they decide to call Allied Enterprises. And they invest their entire, all of them invest their entire life savings, a lot of which was contributed by Parsons. And the plan was for Hubbard and Sarah to buy yachts in Miami, to sail them to the West Coast and sell them for a profit. But he had a different idea. He wrote to the US Navy, requesting permission to leave the country to visit Central and South America and China for the purposes of collecting writing material um, under the guise of. Pretty, well, he wanted to take a, a trip on yep. someone else's dime. Yep. But he wanted to say, oh, I'm going on like a cruise to archaeological. It's going to help my writing. Yeah. But tell the people who are funding your trip, we're doing it for our alliance. Yeah. Ignore the, the floofs. What do you do? So pretty much um, they tried to sail off, but they were forced back because of a storm. A week later, Allied Enterprises ends up getting dissolved. And Parsons, who pretty much was majority owner, he only got back $2,900 and a promissory note from Hubbard, who apparently returned home shattered. And this guy, Parsons, had to sell his mansion to developers because he had to recoup his losses. So his life is just one, like, it's a crazy spiral. So on the 10th of August, 1946... He, while he's married to his first wife, he marries Sarah, right? He's still married to Polly, the mother of his kids. And then he ends up to Sarah, marrying Sarah. And then it takes almost a whole year for Polly to realise that he's married someone else. And then he finally agrees to divorce Polly in June. And then their marriage is dissolved. She's given custody, Polly, this is his first wife, is given custody of their children and during this period, he authors a document called Affirmations, or Scientology now refers to it as the Admissions, which is a series of statements um, addressed to Hubbard relating to various um, physical and psychological and social issues that he was encountering at this point in his life. And apparently these are intended as a form of self-hypnosis with the intention of resolving the author's psychological problems and instilling positive mental attitude. So people say that this is the most revealing psychological self-assessment that he had ever made. Some of them, like, I'm just going to give you some examples. Your eyes are getting progressively better. They became bad when you use them as an excuse to escape the Naval Academy. You have no reason to keep them bad. Your stomach trouble you use as an excuse to keep you from the Navy from punishing you. You are free of the Navy. So everything's just like Navy. Yeah. Navy. It all comes back down to Navy. Yeah. So this dude marries his second wife, divorces his first wife. They settle down at Laguna Beach in California. Who takes a short-term job looking after a friend's yacht. Again, yachts, boats, yeah. Navy. And then he ain't making that much money. Cash, so he gets back into fiction writing, um, and apparently they're giving him 
a small disability allowance because he's a war veteran. Which he's, you know, what? He invaded Mexico. That's about it. <laughs> so now they move to a trailer in a rundown area of North Hollywood. He's still trying to sell science fiction stories. He's short on money. His son, uh, Aaron Hobbit Jr., or Nibs, uh, says that he was dependent on his own father and Margaret's parents for money and his writings, for which he was paid at a penny per word, never garnering, never garnering him more than $10,000 prior to the founding of Scientology. He repeatedly wrote to the Veterans Administration asking for an increase in his war pension, and in 1944, uh, 1947, he wrote to request psychiatric treatment. And he says, After trying and failing to for two years to regain my equilibrium in civil life, I am utterly unable to approach anything like my own competence. My last physician informed me that I might be very helpful if I were to be examined and perhaps treated psychiatrically or even by a psychoanalyst. Toward the end of my service, I avoided out of prior any mental examinations, hoping that time would balance a mind which I had every reason to suppose was seriously affected. I cannot account nor rise above long periods of moroseness and suicidal inclinations. Like, why are you dragging things that actual people are suffering every day? But yeah. okay. And have newly come to realise that I must first triumph above this before I can hope to rehabilitate myself at all. I cannot myself afford such treatment. Would you please help me? So you know what they do? They give this bitch more money. Yeah. Right? All the money. And then on 31st of August 1948, he's arrested and pleads guilty to a charge of petty theft. He had to pay a $25 fine. Um, Back then it was $25. Today, that's $261. And do you know, this angers me so much because for so, so long, mental health was has been such, so stigmatized yeah in not just the military like a lot of high stressful careers and jobs right and i have heard stories of people in, like that were or are in the military they had to like sign and re-enlist for four plus years of their life to stay in the military because their tour ended while they were overseas, right? Yeah. And their contract ended two days before they had to travel home. Yeah. And they didn't have enough money in the bank to because they haven't paid them the rest of their pay yeah. to buy a ticket home, yeah. right? And they can't stay somewhere where they don't have a visa. No. So the only way to get home is to be like, re-up. Yeah. So they sign another four years of their life away, right? So, no disrespect to the military, like, thank you to everyone, allies and whatever, for your, you know, your service. But people literally are on the front line and they can't get the help they need. Yeah. They can't get their family the help they need. But this guy's just talking shit. Yep. And there you go. But whatever. How long have we been recording for, Pierce? Well, at the moment, we're sitting on a nice hour of 1 hour 23 minutes. Alright, I think I've got about another 30 minutes left. I hope that's okay. Because this is where it all goes south. So it's 1948. He and his wife have mo- are moving from California to Georgia. He tries to say he worked as a volunteer in a psychiatric clinic. And this is where we start Dianetics. 
So he writes in 1949 that he's working on a book of psychology, The Cause and Cure of Nervous Tension, and he's going to call it The Dark Sword, Excalibur of Science of the Mind. Again, Excalibur. But what are we going to talk, right? He writes to a fellow science fiction author and um, pretty much says, I have the ability to cure criminals of violent personality traits. So he publishes uh, Terra Incognita, The Mind, and he tries to get several professional organisations to publish his uh, research. And um, a lot of people aren't happy about it. He has a friend that invites him and his wife to kind of, you know, oh, we'll kind of be friends. We'll see if we can get the, this guy's called Campbell. Um, you know, let's see if we can get people like institutions and psychiatrists to, you know, pick this up. Because, you know, we're going to be able to kill schizophrenics, apathies, manics, depressives, perverts, stuttering, neuroses, not my words, theirs. Right? Um, they didn't have any proper statistics. But um, he can tell you that he cured every patient he worked with. He cured ulcers, arthritis and asthma. Do you think he knows what they are? No. Nope. I probably don't think so. So he works with his two friends, Campbell and Winter, to refine his techniques and tested them on science fiction fans. Yeah. Right? So the basic principle of Dianetics is that the brain records every experience and event in your life and even when you're unconscious. So bad, painful, really like hallmarkly bad experiences are stored... Okay. So what you're saying is if I follow this program, I will recall every like bad episode of a really bad show I've watched over the course of the last a thousand years. You could have been your past lives could have been more than a thousand years ago, mate. Wait, so you're saying I could have been a brontosaurus taking crap in the woods and you know You could have been an atom in the Big Bang. Jeez, that's atomic. I know, because of you, maybe a whole civilization or, you know, species didn't arise. <laughs> Atlanteans. Maybe it's because I left the tap on. <laughs> so, um, these bad, painful experiences are stored in engrams in your reactive mind. And these are going to be triggered later in life and cause you emotional and physical problems. By carrying out auditing, a process in which a person can be regressed through their engrams, you re-experience your past experiences, you can become cleared. So now that you're cleared, you have a perfectly functioning mind, an improved IQ and photographic memory. The clear also cures your physical ailments, ranging from, from poor eyesight to the common cold, which he asserts, he being Ron, that they're purely psychosomatic. Now, this is my favourite part. He sends his paper to the Journal of American Medical Association. And the American General of Psychiatry. Yeah. If you don't know how big those papers are... They're huge. Especially as a neurobiologist myself, like, they're our science... Yeah. And they're our nature. Yeah. I know they're not one-name papers. Yeah. But, but they're big in that field. They're massive. And thankfully, my gods rejected it. 
Could you imagine even having to peer review that? Like, I have that in my notes. But could you imagine getting... They, I hope they just threw it out. Yeah. It I hope someone by. knew exactly who he was, the editor, and just, like, tossed it. Yeah. And was just, like, disinfected his whole bench. But how do you peer review that? Because there are no peers, technically. So... <laughs> They publish it as a standing science fiction. So he publishes it in a science fiction book, journal, magazine, whatever. I don't know. Because nothing says I have the forefront in science, like publishing in a science fiction magazine or whatever the hell it is, right? So his friend Campbell, who's trying to pretty much saying, let's send it to all these institutions and all these doctors and let's try and get people to pick this up. Yes says, its power is almost unbelievable. It proves the mind can not only, not only can, but does rule the body completely. Following the sharply defined basic laws set forth, physical ills such as ulcers, asthma and arthritis can be cured, as can all other psychosomatic ills. I don't get it. But this guy ends up having a second daughter to his second wife. And she was born in the middle of preparations to launch Dianetics. Uh, then they ended up making, a couple of years after that, the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation, which he, his wife, and his two friends that were like, let's get it out to the institutions, all headed. Which, massive conflict of interest, but what's she going to do, right? And then he launches it to the world in the 1950s claiming that he has developed skills for uh, the invariable cure of all these diseases. Uh, he publishes a companion book, Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health. Apparently Hermitage House published this. He abandons freelance writing to promote Dianetics. He keeps writing books about it for decades, delivering an estimated 4,000 lectures, and he founded Dianetics Research Organisations. All that money. Now, this part pains me because it sets up everything that is to come. So, Dianetics was an immediate commercial success. And uh, Martin Gardner called it a nationwide cult of incredible proportions. So, I don't understand how people saw this scam then, right? But it's still got as big as it is today. Yeah, it's, it's still huge. And it's still ripping people off. So he sells 55,000 copies of this first Dianetics book at a rate of 4,000 a week. It was translating to French, German, Japanese. He establishes 500 Dianetic auditing groups across the US. But Dianetics is poorly received by the press, scientific and medical professions. The AMAP... <laughs> The APA, <laughs> I love the APA, hashtag APA formatting. I have to be an MBJ girl now. Uh, Criticise his claims as they're not supported by empirical evidence. Scientific Americans said that Hubbard's <laughs> book contained more promises and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. Just... <laughs> oh my god, could you imagine writing that? Like, they have to do a lot of redactions. Oh, you know, there is some funny redactions, redactions, but to just publish that outright, like, could you imagine reading that today on a Twitter account? That would be beautiful. The New Republic called it a bold, immodest mixture of complete nonsense and perfectly reasonable common sense, taken from a, from a long-acknowledged findings and disguised and distorted by a crazy, newly invented terminology. Uh, 
even his science fiction writer friends pretty much said it was uh, gibberish and a lunatic revision affording psychology. Yeah, just he's a he's a muppet. Sorry, what a Absolute break. Absolute muppet. But the more you know, I suppose oppressing thing is the fact that he's actually managed to make this much from it, and it's yeah. still going today. Yeah. So he tries to get famous individuals of the time involved. Uh, Aldous Huxley, who becomes uh, Al Ron Hubbard, audited him himself. Poet John Toomer, none of these names mean anything to me. Um, a science fiction writer, Theodore Sturgeon, and A.E. Van Vaux, who all become trained Dianetics authors. Now, I should mention that Dianetics is not cheap, and uh, they were still, nonetheless, people willing to pay. Uh, Van Vogt later recalled that doing little but tear open envelopes and pull out $500 checks from people who wanted to take an auditor's course. So walk in the door, here's a check for $500. Jeez. Right? Yeah. And that's then. Uh, obviously, because it was so new, no one had any laws for it. So financial controls were very lax. He would pretty much go into their offices and just take money out of the till, essentially. or the safe. I don't know if it was a safe or a till. It would have to be a safe, you'd think, for this amount of money. He would just go into the offices and take out cash. So Van, Van Vogt, Vogt or whatever the hell his name is, he saw him back then take out $56,000. If you inflate that to today's US dollar, that is almost 600000 yeah. US dollars. It was exactly $596,146.10, right? Out of the LA Foundation alone. His employees uh, say that uh, his books were making a monthly income of $90,000. That's just in the New Jersey branch, right? But on, So of that $90,000... They could only find $20,000. So where's that extra $70,000, right? So he's writing, and to promote this, he's giving lectures, and he's training auditors. Everyone who he pulls in says that he's charismatic, he's impressive, he's dedicated, he's amusing. He has tremendous charisma. You just want to hear every word he has to say and listen for any pearl of wisdom. And that, my friend, is one of the most dangerous people you will ever find on this earth because they're the kind of people that not only, you know, tell you to go to hell, but make you look forward to what it's like when you get there. Yeah. And I I busted some quote, some Aries astrology quote that I read back in the day, but Jesus Christ... Yeah, yeah. So he has all these personal qualities that pretty much lure people in. He was a compulsive talker, which we kind of already knew because they called him garrulous. I love that word, by the way. <laughs> he was restless. He didn't sleep. He woke up early and he just wanted to drive this because now he finally has a purpose. Yeah. Now the money is finally coming in. He wants to keep doing what's bringing that back. For sure. So people, he's telling people, you're not cleared yet. You're not cleared yet. You know, we still have to do more auditing. And people are pretty much waking up. And these people who have been deemed clear, 
their behavior, you know, they're supposed to have photographic memory. They're supposed to be cleared of every ailment, right? It's all psychosomatic. Once we clear you, asthma's gone. Yeah. You know, arthritis is gone. Everything is gone. Nearsightedness is gone. My bank balance is gone. Oh, full bloody sure. Let's be real, right? Um, sorry. It just goes absolutely (coughs) crazy. And then, I mean, it's a surprise this guy wasn't shut down soon. So, um, he lost... As Dianetics, like the foundation of Dianetics itself, Dianetics, lost all public credibility because in August of 1950, he gave a presentation in front of a 6,000-strong audience at the Shrine Auditorium in LA. He introduced uh, someone who had deemed clear himself. Her name was Sonia Bianca. He told the audience that she was, you know, because she underwent diagnostic therapy, she possessed perfect recall. However, some dude who was there said in the demonstration that followed, she failed to remember a single formula in physics. Apparently, she was majoring in physics. The color of his tie when his back was turned. And then people are realizing this, so they just get up and leave. Yeah. But also, who, like, in real life, who memorizes those things, like, generally, anyway? Like, you're there to see him, but I guess at the same time, like, you notice people when they're giving a lecture and stuff. So, essentially, you know... But I don't know. But at the same time, like, my major was in biochemistry and chemistry, right? But I don't remember every single formula. Like, you see 1v1 equals C2v2, but this is physics. So, like, we're talking essays worth of formulas here. Yeah. But whatever. So, um, pretty much people are leaving him. <laughs> There's this other guy who uh, is leaving the Dianetics community and he opens up a public practice where people can pursue their own lines of research and their auditing produce better results than his. So his followers end up leaving and going to these other people and they turned out to be another occult practice, but we'll cover them <laughs> in a later episode because that's screwy in itself. So by the late 1950s, uh, just the New Jersey... You're, like, freaking out about this, aren't you? I just see is when you start going through it, like, like down the occult path. It's like, what the... So, the, just the New Jersey uh, office, they... and the New, Sorry, just the LA office were more than $200,000 in debt back then, which is one point... Essentially, like, $1.7 million today. Just a little over that much in debt, right? Non's buying books. He's being called impossible to work with. They're blaming him for disorganization and essentially financial ruin. So they close, they, all the branches have to start getting closed. His marriage to his second wife is beginning to fall apart because he's having a, another affair with uh, a 20 year old now. Because she's getting sick of him. Yeah, public relations assistant. And. His second wife is also having um, a relationship with a Dianetics author called Miles Hollister. He didn't like that because, you know, I can cheat, but you can't. I can find solace somewhere else, but you can't. Yeah. So he goes to the FBI and tells the FBI that they're communist infiltrators, that his wife is in currently intimate with communists, but evidently under coercion. Drug addiction setting in the fall of 1950. None of this was known to me until a few weeks ago. Uh, And he described this other guy, the actual auditor that his wife is now with. 
uh, as having a sharp chin, broad forehead, rather Slavic. Again, racist, but whatever. Um, and so the FBI obviously don't take him seriously. <laughs> and the FBI agent who had to take this report took a footnote comment saying, appears mental. Yeah. Like, mental off the chain. So, two, we- two or three weeks later, Ron and two of his foundation staff seized Sarah and his daughter that he has with Sarah and took them to San Bernardo, California, where he attempted, thankfully unsuccessfully, to find a doctor to examine her and declare her insane. He let Sarah go, but he took his daughter to Havana, Cuba. Uh, his, daughter, his second wife files a divorce, accuses him of marrying her biogamously, uh, he subjected her to sleep deprivation, beatings and strangulation, kidnapping, exertions to commit suicide, which, like, that could be true. I'm not here to judge whether that's true or not. If he's crazy, like, you know, I'm inclined to believe what... Not that she requires me to believe what she's saying, but that's what she said. Uh, she finally gets her daughter back because she agreed to a settlement and she signed a statement that was written by him. And uh, because obviously he's the writer in the family, right? So yeah. his statement was, the things I've said about Elrond Hubbard in courts and the public prints have been grossly exaggerated or entirely false. I've not at any time believed otherwise other than Elrond Hubbard is a fine and brilliant man, which is very reminiscent of the letter, the recommendation that his uh, representative friend wrote for him, in quotation marks, to get him into the Navy, right? Does that not read the exact same way? But whatever. So Dianetics, uh, this guy called Don Purcell, who was apparently at the time a millionaire businessman and a Dianeticist, he starts up a new foundation for them in Wichita, Kansas. But their collaboration ends in a year because they fell out about the future direction. Um, So that foundation becomes financially non-viable, according to a court, and uh, it's labelled defunct. Purcell and a few of the other directors of the foundation. Shells, what are you doing? Mm. <laughs> uh, go ahead, file for voluntary bankruptcy. Hubbard resigns immediately and accuses Purcell of having been bribed by the American Medical Association to destroy Dianetics. And then he, to get back at everyone, um, published, established, sorry, Hub, uh, Hubbard College, where he tried to promote Dianetics. Um, and with the money that his students, in quotation marks, were paying him, that money was going to fighting Purcell for the intellectual pro- property of Dianetics because he needed that for the next step. So six weeks after that, he ends up marrying a now 18-year-old girl. So we've gone from 21 to 20 to literally just legal 18-year-old Mary Sue Whip. Um... He closes down his college and moves with Mary Sue to Phoenix, Arizona, where they set up the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International to promote science of certainty, Scientology. So at this point, um, my notes, Scientology and Dianetics are differentiated because Dianetics is about releasing the mind from distorted influence of Engrams and Scientology is a study of handling of the spirit in relation to itself, universes, and other life. So basically, you cannot prove Scientology, but everyone can tell you you're talking shit 
yep. with Dianetics, right? Exactly. But then he pulls out this thing called the E-Meter and publishes Scientology, A History of Man. And the Church of Scientology is like, this is where he discovers a new line of research. He is a spiritual man and, you know, he knows everything about how life actually began. And apparently, to be a fundamentally spiritual being, you're a thetan. Okay. I, I just hate them. I know. It's just... Um, so, everyone who's not a Scientologist says that this is him trying to reassert control over his creation. He lost control of Dianetics and to make sure that he stays in business with something and he needed to have, like, he needed to use the rights of Dianetics to prove that he was still using them, right? That it was still a business for him to be awarded the copyright and, like, the trademarks and the ownership of Dianetics. So he starts a religion now for it. Yeah. So before it was just a medical scheme. People woke up to snake oil. So now it's a church. Yeah. Because science you can disprove. Religion is a belief. Right? It's devoid of science. Yeah. So you choose something to do that people can't fight, but you need to use the rights that you're fighting for to show that it's yours. And if you're using them, you're more likely back then to be awarded it by the courts. So, um, eventually, I don't know how it ended up happening, but Dianetics and its copyrights ended up going to Purcell. And apparently, uh, Hubbard, straight after this, is complaining that he's not able to make a living on what he was being paid as a science fiction writer. No one can explain where the money went from Dianetics. Um, so, one friend... Lester Del Rey tells him, dude, start a religion. So he goes, well, I know Dianetics works. Let's tie it up spiritually. But at this point in time, it wasn't as, like it wasn't deemed religious. It was just a spiritual thing. It wasn't like a religion. It wasn't a cult yet. So he starts this doctrine based on the concept that a true self of a person was a thetan. Also, can I just say, yes. this is how crazy it was. In that book... Did you tell me you read it? No, 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 no. I, I haven't read the book. But about the Galactic according, according to him, he had his own, um, you know, steps that humans essentially evolved from. Yeah. So essentially, just an excerpt was, the hinges of a clam later became the hinges of the human jaw. So... Essentially, evolution. The clam's method of reproduction and spores is said to be responsible for toothache. And then it went on to say that something along these lines was explained to someone who then had, you know, severe jaw pain and then wasn't able to use their jaw for a few days after hearing about clam death. Oh, no. So... This is it. The yeah. more you read, the crazier it gets. So, yeah, that book is called Elrond Habit Scientology A History of Man. Now, here's the thing, though. This Muppet wrote Battlefield Earth. Battlefield Earth, you know, comes out as John Travolta. Oh, <laughs> God. But he's a Scientologist. 
yeah. But then it's also got Forest 420 Whitaker. I mean, that is a bad joke. Yeah. I don't understand that, but okay. Because he's got... Uh, yeah. Sozzles, explain that better. Sir Thedon is an immortal, omniscient, and potentially omnipotent entity. And Ron... Like coffee is omnipotent. <laughs> so Ron starts saying that... Um, Thedans have created the material universe. We've forgotten our godlike powers and became trapped in physical bodies. Scientology aims to rehabilitate each person's Thetan to restore its original capacities to once, beca- once again become an operating Thetan. He insisted that humanity was imperiled by the forces of aberration, which was a result of Ingrams carried out by immortal Thetans for billions of years. Um... Ohio State University professor Hugh Urban says that he adopted many of his theories from early to mid 20th century astral projection pioneer Sylvian, uh, sorry, Sylvan Muldoon, who stated that Hubbard's uh, description of exteriorizing a thetan is extremely similar, if not identical, to the descriptions of astral projection in cult literature uh, popularized by Muldoon's widely read Phenomena of Astral Projection, 1951. And uh, her description of the astral body being connected to the physical body by a thin elastic cord, virtually identical to the one described in Excalibur, which, fair enough. So he pulls out the E-meter, um, which has a mystical power to reveal an individual's innermost thoughts. And again, he gets back onto the lecture grind and does bulletins, publishes books, and tries to say that the ability to make one's body old or young at will, the ability to heal, ill, uh, you know, without physical contact, to cure people, and the incapacitated, you know, is we're going to replace physicians, mathematicians, physicists. Um, they try to distance themselves from Dianetics, but at the same time, obviously, they have the core underlying beliefs there, like it's not that much difference being audited to now we're going to, you know, make you a high-level Thetan or whatever on earth they're trying to sell you here. So they pretty much set up training procedures. Doctrines become standardized. They promote everything through the Hubbard Association of Scientologists. They set up branches of or orgs, hashtag Sea Orgs, uh, which, again, they have franchises. Um, apparently they're likened to fast food chain um, restaurant chains because each restaurant holder has to pay 10% of the income to him and now that he's dead to his estate but what are you going to do they're expected to find recruits also known as raw meat but they needed to restrictly provide basic services to newer people because they know that people climbing up the Scientology chain you know, you want to get more money from people who are already involved. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you've already taken them in. You've already got, like, the the mouse is already in the box. Keep luring it further and further in. You know what I mean? So that's what they wanted to do. And this model proved to be extremely successful, even though it started out very small scale with a few dozen followers. Uh, he gave 72, a 70-hour lecture series in Philadelphia. Attended by 38 people. So, like, not many people were listening, but the people who were listening bought into it. Yeah. And that's what it was built upon. Um, he even got his 18-year-old son, Nibs, his firstborn um, from his first wife, who couldn't settle down in school. He got his son to commit to Scientology. He became a professor 
uh, he traveled with his dad to establish control over Dianetics and kind of take over Dianetics because this other guy is still doing Dianetics on the side, this Purcell dude. Mary Sue, his third wife, gives birth to um, like the, one of their children, Diana. He acquires a doctorate from an unaccredited degree mill called Sequia University. Uh, as membership declined, finances grew tighter. He had hostility, the same hostility that he pretty much approached Dianetics with. After becoming Dr. Hubbard, he writes a letter outlining his plans to transform Scientology into a religion because when you're a religion, you don't get taxed. No, you don't. None at all. So he sets up a chain of spiritual guidance centers that charges customers $500 for 24 hours of auditing, proposing them, you know, because this would propose that Scientology is a religion because you're getting people in, you know, we're making you a higher level and spiritual guidance. When you pull in spiritual guidance, that's what it is. So they're moving further and further away from the medical clinic um, application side of things. Yeah. So it, they're switching it to a guidance center now. So they put up, apparently, this is a quote from someone who worked there. They put some boys uh, in neat blue suits, chucked up a few diplomas on the walls, you know, buffed him up, gave him some money, and they were pretty much up in business, cycling as a religion and getting closer and closer to what a religion is. So they set up the Church of Scientology, the Church of American Science, and the Church of Spiritual Engineering, all in New Jersey. His third wife and his secretary, John Galusha, all become trustees of the three corporations. Like, you would have already thought after what you did with your first two wives, you know, you don't get them on the board. But he did that with his third wife with Scientology. Scientology just keeps building. And he finally essentially wins over Don Purcell in 1954. Uh, after constant litigation, he gets Dianetics back. Yeah. So That's, now, I, sorry. They should have never let him get it back. They should have just... Uh, pretty up. much. They should have thrown it in the bin. So now everything that was Dianetics gets rebranded as Scientology. So now he brings medical claims back into Scientology and says, we're going to cure you of this and polio sufferers are being cured by us and we propose scientific research in investigating polio. And allegedly, like one, not allegedly because I found it, an advertisement, plagued by illness will make you able to have good health. Get processed by the finest capable auditors in the world today. Personally coached and monitored by L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> so this is where it becomes an enterprise, fits. essentially. He's getting paid percentages of every single church's gross income. In 1957, his first like payout was $250,000, which today is $2.23 million. His third wife gives birth to three other kids in the spring of 59. This is where they purchased St. Hill Manor, which was an 18th century house in Sussex, formerly owned by uh, Sawai Man Singh II, the Maharaja of Jaipur. And the house became the permanent residence and international training center for Scientologists. And with all that money, do you know what he did? He made his own navy. Hashtag Sea Org. But I have to leave you with something. We will pick this up next next time when we cover 
you know, I'll try and give it a break. We'll do a couple of episodes before we pick up Scientology again, um, in case you get bored. Uh, so we'll pick up with Sea Org, how he went into hiding, and the rise of Miscavige in part two. I apologise, it's probably a two-hour episode now, right? Uh, let me have a look. Yeah, we've got like, we're pushing like an <laughs> hour and 55 minutes. Sorry, yeah. it's been the longest episode for a while. Yeah, this is this is a long one. <sighs> one of my favourites, for sure. <laughs> Alright, I'm done. That's it. That's all I have for me notes. To be continued. <sighs> Praise. Uh, Thetans, all hail intellectual god Xenu. Uh, this is why we need Death Stars, and this is why we need the Forts. Which, uh, well, we have gaffer tape, and it's because it has a light side and dark side, and it holds the universe together. But uh, it's doing your heading. So next week, look, I'll give you a couple of good things. All right? Do you want me to tell you what's on the agenda, or do you want me to keep it a secret? Surprise! Keep the surprise. All but right. I do know there's some other things about Scientology that I know that. Um, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a couple of weeks of break from Scientology. All right. Yeah. And then we'll jump into the second. And half. then we'll smash it out of the park. Yeah, and then we won't have to touch Scientology ever again. Does that sound? Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Sorry that it was a longer one, but at the same time, I like to think you subscribe to our podcast because you want to hear me bitch about stuff. So, yep, that's it from me. Yep, so on that note, uh, thank you for watching. Um, Yeah. Have a great week or weekend. Your audibly sensible representative. You done? Kind of, yeah. (laughs) You know. I was just letting out feet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh um, I was going to say, uh, all of our contact information down below in yeah. the description. Please give us a like. Yes. And um, rate us. And, yes, and if um, you like beans, this is the pod for the beans. Yeah. Sayonara. Au revoir. Au revoir. Avidya say. Metaphors be with you. Goodbye. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper, yeah. Spock for the win. Oh, yeah, Discovery. Spock's yeah. the only uh, Lord and Saviour I need. Yeah, <laughs> Spock, the Vulcan way. <laughs> yes. And on that note, ta-ta for now. Ta-ta for now.